On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, mourn the passing of a leader in the ASC industry, discuss the new categorical waiver from CMS and the continued delay in the 2021 HOPD and ASC rates. In our focus segment, we will discuss operational issues in our new world and pandemic fatigue with our friend Christina Norman. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 117 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for November 29th, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and Owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. So we can actually honestly say that we are not super busy this week. I, you know, mm-hmm. we, we keep talking about how we're, uh, uh, every episode we seem to say that we're, you know, <laughs> so busy with things yep. going on. But this was Thanksgiving week that we're recording. Yeah. We're recording it on, I think it's Saturday today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a nice couple of days. It was a little, little yep. calm leading into it. Uh, I was on a survey Monday and Tuesday. You were at home taking care of your grandchildren again. Yep. But Yep. My new granddaughter. Right. So. And and we got no to see chore my there. That was just fun. Yep. We got over to, to see Josie too. Yeah. So. And then uh, yeah. we had Thanksgiving, a, mm-hmm. a very uh, traditional Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing because it yes, was roast typical. beef instead of turkey, uh, keto stuffing with yeah. turkey gravy, uh, roasted Brussels sprouts and Deep cauliflower. fried Brussels sprouts, <laughs> which are really good. <laughs> really good. And cauliflower mashed potatoes. And yes. for those listeners out there saying that is a strange meal, we I just said, we're adults. We can eat whatever we want. Yep. Did we even have dessert first? I can't. Were we that bad? No, I don't think so. I don't think we ate before that because we're kind of doing that yeah. intermittent fasting thing too. So we didn't eat until we had this. We had an early dinner. And yes, the keto stuffing. I am. I am a happy person. I thought I might never have it again because we're both kind of keto. I'm. I'm getting back on it. Yeah. Um. But we found some low carb uh, bagels right. from Judy had told us about our, our friend Judy, and um, we made uh, stuffing with that the with good. the chopped up bagels. So 
We probably should tell our audience thing. that we've we've talked about this a little bit through uh, mm-hmm. uh, through the years, but uh, about uh, coming up on two years ago now, I started mm-hmm. on a low carb diet, actually with the help of uh, Judy D'Ambrosio, yep. who yep. a former she host, a co-host yep. of this show, and then you got into it after that. I've yep. I've been on long enough that I've lost almost. Well, more than 80 pounds now. Yeah. I've been able to keep it off. I, can't, I haven't been able to – I've been there probably about 10 months now, so I haven't been able to lose any more yeah. weight because of a certain pandemic, I think. Yeah. At least that's, that's what I'm <laughs> that's blaming. That's the excuse. <laughs> that's the excuse. I know. Well, and I've I've done worse because I, I first lost – I think it was about 65 pounds. And then yeah. actually <clears throat> about a year ago, I kind of fell off around the holidays. Yeah, yeah. And I've put almost half of that back on, but – that's I'm, still I'm heading on my way down again So and, and feeling better. I mean, that's really right. even more – well, maybe not more, but it's very important that, you know, you don't feel with that sugar high and low. And yeah. So anyways, and we managed to have a really tasty meal even it with that. It was great. It was great. We haven't given a puppy update. I think it's very important to Since keep Since what, the... last week? Or... <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> all we talk about. <laughs> so uh, Rosie, our... Uh, uh, 10 months old. 10 now. months old. Um, She's a uh, cream English colored cream. English golden retriever. She's yep. 10 months old next week or this week. Yep. And a very smart dog. Her favorite thing is uh, a little trick we call peekaboo, where she yep. she goes behind us and between our legs. And, and sits up between, you know, yeah. peeking out at somebody. <laughs> Sounds a little weird, but she, she does like it. It's yeah. her little trick. She, and, and we had a class today again with her, so right. she's learning other things. I do think she's the smartest golden retriever I've ever had, but that really doesn't. <laughs> that doesn't mean a lot. <laughs> I, I know they say that Goldens are supposed to be super yeah. smart dogs, but that hasn't been my experience. Not, but Rosie's very smart. <laughs> not super smart at identifying threats, though. <laughs> she had a little panic attack when she saw we set up our first little Christmas tree in the dining room, and she hadn't noticed it, and the lights were on, and she went to walk through the room <laughs> and came skidding, flying back at us with this. She has this, like, scared bark that she does. And I mean, I thought, oh my gosh, somebody must have just charged into the house because right. she was so panicked. Then I realized, no, it was just a Christmas tree in the light. So she is spoiled rotten, though. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. <clears throat> we've uh, we've been talking about um, coronavirus mm-hmm. fatigue or mm-hmm. COVID nineteen fatigue, and thank goodness we have thank goodness we have each other, and we have you know this uh, the smart mm-hmm. puppy. But it's yeah. been we're still tiring. fatigued. We are, you know. Yeah. And, Think of people that are in a worse position, that aren't, aren't able to work or have their kids, yeah. like my daughter having the kids home from school um, a good percentage of the time. And, and yeah, and just the healthcare workers, you know, getting yeah. petered out with it and not always being as careful about the masking. I mean, I think most people are, but it's just getting harder. Yeah. Yeah, we had an opportunity to talk to Christina Norman, who is a dear friend of ours. She had an article in uh, Ask a uh, Magazine. Forget what the name of the magazine is, but Focus. Or... Uh, 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 right, ASC Focus. So we're going to interview her during our second segment here. But I, I think we can all share in this concern. It's been a lot of our time recently in our conversations with our clients has been about you know some of the fatigue that they're suffering and the uh, the issue of people mm-hmm. starting to let things slip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we did talk about that during the conference. And of course, this coming week, we're getting ready for our first of two major conferences to end the year, the uh, ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement. Um, we are, <laughs> we're still hoping to get the uh, the CMS HOPDA ASC rule. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here. But uh, if that doesn't come out soon, we're we're going to be uh, just, well, we'll talk about the uh, interim rule anyway. But, and then, um, so it's still time. Uh, this episode will drop on the weekend here, and uh, you still have time to sign up for the ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement, which is on the 3rd and the 4th, Thursday and Friday this coming week. Uh, and then <clears throat> next week, we have a credentialing conference. 
on December 8th, which is very, very important. Uh, so sign up for that if, uh, if, or sign your staff up for that if they uh, want to learn more about credentialing. Sue, I don't know of any other conference out there about this important topic. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's going to be very well received. Yeah. And especially lately, we really notice there's a huge need for that out there. Right. So let's talk about uh, recent news. Unfortunately, we have to lead with some very, very sad news. I, I got this just a couple of days ago. So Ann Schimmick, uh, she's an RN CASC, Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Surgical Partners, passed away this past week. Um, Ann was a former uh, ASCA board member and was the Executive Director of the ASC Quality Collaboration. She had actually just taken on that role. And she also served on the Technical Committee of the uh, Amatory Surgery Center Quality Cooperative and the ASC Quality Collaborative Committee for Electronic Health Records for the ASC. You can see that a lot of her her titles over the years have been with mm-hmm. quality. Yeah. And uh, and her so ASCA had this wonderful obituary for her, or I, I guess I'd call it an obituary. And they noted in their uh, article that she had worked in the healthcare industry for more than thirty years. She graduated summa cum laude from Wright State University with a bachelor of science in nursing in nineteen eighty eight and received her uh, Master of Science in Nursing with Honors from Benedictine University in 2012. After graduating from Wright, uh, Ann worked as a nurse for eight years in various places in Texas, her home, and then became the clinical director of Dallas Day Surgery Center. That's where she really kind of got into the surgery center industry. And after five years there, she joined United Surgical Partners and worked there in various positions for uh, 16 years. And John, you and I interviewed Ann about a year ago when we were in California. Uh, I think we talked about establishing a culture of quality in an ASC, as you mentioned, that was kind of a passion of hers. Uh, but we haven't used the interview yet, so yeah, we'll see if we can integrate it. Right. We've we've uh, there's a number of interviews that we recorded from conferences uh, mm-hmm. back last year, and then a certain pandemic, unfortunately, has gotten yeah. in the way. And um, when we heard about Anne's passing, I I went back because I actually thought that we had used her interview, mm-hmm. and I didn't. We we did some double checking, and uh, it certainly is sitting there. And I I feel. Uh, bad that we, I mean, it was a wonderful mm-hmm. interview. So we're going to work something yes. out soon. Um, but our prayers go out to Anne's family and friends during this very difficult time. You want me to introduce this? this is a little technical. I want you to talk completely. Okay. About <laughs> nothing about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My thing. <laughs> so CMO, uh, so CMS announced a categorical waiver for corrugated medical tubing. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but on September 25th, uh, 2020, CMS announced a categorical waiver related to corrugated medical tubing, and we're going to give a link for this. So when you uh, have oxygen lines uh, in a surgery center, up until this categorical waiver came out, they had to be uh, piped using copper tubing. Mm. And the problem with that copper tubing is, you know, every time you change a tank, you bend the copper tubing and you could break okay. it. And this corrugated uh, medical tubing is much more bendable, uh, has not been allowed uh, with uh, with oxygen lines. So ASCs are required to maintain compliance with the 2012 edition of the NFPA Health Facilities Code, better known as NFPA 99. And it required medical gas and vacuum system tubings to be rigid copper tubing, as I indicated, and does not allow for the use of this corrugated medical tubing, also known as CMT. However, uh, in certain applications, the inability to use it may be considered an unreasonable hardship as the installation of CMT may be more efficient and economical, which is definitely something we've seen, especially right now where, you know, we're having harder time you know, getting even maintenance people to uh, mm-hmm. to come in. I don't know how everybody else is, but I'm finding just a real lack of 
there, there just aren't it, it everything is behind i mean just look at our own house here you know we've mm-hmm. we got a bunch of things that uh, we've been trying to get done, fixed here and it's taken forever to do it same thing in the surgery centers therefore in, in recognition of this uh, of this uh, cms is issuing a categorical waiver to allow the use of cmt in new and existing healthcare facilities based on provisions provided in nfpa 99 for 2018 uh, let's just talk a little bit about what a categorical waiver is. A categorical waiver is a is a situation where you integrate it. Uh, you have the board pass this waiver. Uh, you integrate it into your policies and procedures. And as soon as a surveyor comes in at the uh, entrance conference, you give them a copy of your categorical waiver, basically indicating that you have signed on to this uh, this waiver through CMS. And uh, based upon that, the surveyors have to accept that waiver in lieu of enforcing whatever rule that uh, is being waived. So if you do choose to go with this, and I actually do recommend that you consider this, of all the categorical waivers out there, this could be probably one of the most useful ones. In order to Utilize it. You have to formally elect and document that decision in your board minutes. And at the uh, uh, opening of the conference, uh, it must uh, notify the uh, life safety surveyors that it is elected to use it and provide the surveyor with the documented decision, in other words, the board minutes, and verification of compliance with all the applicable provisions. So um, we're, as I said, we're going we're gonna to post a copy of the categorical waiver information, and then you would keep that. What I do is I attach that to the board minutes, Mm -hmm. and then the categorical waiver that you would hand to the surveyors. It is not acceptable for the ASC to notify the surveyors uh, of the election to use it after the survey team has issued a citation. So if you forget, too bad. Uh, So if the organization failed to declare their election at the opening conference, the waiver may be submitted as a corrective action Mm -hmm. uh, through the plan of correction system. And then the the surveyor will review the documented decision to use a categorical waiver and confirm the facility is compliant with all other applicable um, provisions. So the real takeaway here is don't forget to to give it at the the beginning of that Mm -hmm. conference. So as it indicated, the categorical waiver is applicable to both new and existing facilities effective immediately. And if you have any questions, you can contact uh, your accreditation organization just to make sure you're doing things right. So I I encourage this because um, I'm seeing a lot of the uh, tubing, you know, being mishandled or just Uh broken. And, you know, if you break a you could actually end up being down for a period of time if that um, if while you're replacing a tank, you accidentally break the, the the tubing there. So I thought that was useful, and uh, do follow our show notes, and I'll have a link to that. On November 12th, ASCA joined the Advanced Medical Technology Association, or ADVAMED, and Medical Device Manufacturers Association, or MDMA, in sending a letter urging Congress to eliminate the copay penalty that Medicare beneficiaries face when they receive some procedures in ASCs, which I was surprised when I read this. I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. As another Part B services, a beneficiary's copayment for ASC procedures is 20% of the procedure cost. For services provided in hospital outpatient departments, however, a beneficiary's copay is capped at the Part A deductible amount, which for 2020 is $1,408. This penalizes beneficiaries when they receive high-cost procedures in ASCs, which seems so counterintuitive because then it's costing... It's costing more in the end to go to a hospital. Despite so the fact that our you know, our fee, the overall fee is you know mm-hmm. about fifty six percent of it. Yeah, yeah, this is a very nuanced thing, and I, I haven't actually seen this come back at, for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's nice that ASCA is, uh, is again addressing this issue. This came up, I mean, even a decade ago, and mm-hmm. I'm surprised that Congress still hasn't fixed this problem. But I guess it does show, you know, that there is. I guess if you wanted to be a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, you could say, well, you know, they're doing it just to give benefits to the hospitals. So they're asking that Congress 
must apply the same framework that it created to cap the beneficiary spending in HOPDs and, and just to ensure that a more fair distribution. Right. So, Sue, the uh, final Medicare ASC payment rule was del- is still delayed, I guess. Um, so we're sitting here on Saturday, November 28th. We still don't have the rule out. We have a conference coming up where we're going to talk about it, though we do have the interim rule, so we have mm-hmm, still stuff mm-hmm. to talk about. Yes. Um, we do know that the delay is related to COVID-19, and CMS has indicated that if the delay is too long, they will extend the period of time before it is implemented. But that could actually be bad news for us because if the payment rule is favorable or, you know, certain industries that are certain mm-hmm. specialties that have increased rates would have that uh, that delay. So a delay is not necessarily a good thing for us. So hopefully they'll be very good about it. So um, ASCA is still anticipating the role will be released around Thanksgiving. Yes. Uh, we're, Clearly uh, not, but we're not there. thereafter, so, we hope. Yeah. So let's hope that it comes out very soon. And Sue, so you had to... Uh, information from our friends over at ARN. They have a mm-hmm. cyber sale going on. Very, um, this is something you have to act on quickly. It goes on until November 30th. So you can save on the standard membership. For example, one year was $170. Now it's $99. There's also one year leader membership, which includes exclusive leadership education and tools. It was 225 Now it's 170 And they also have uh, two-year memberships and and, and longer memberships. Yeah. And they're also offering discounts on uh, books and on their virtual education. And again, really, we'll give a link to the mm-hmm. uh, to the, the discounts here. Yeah. And you can also just, you know, AORN. Right. And, and you'll find it. We just really want to kind of emphasize the importance of ARN. We're really a leader in uh, operating room uh, nursing information. Uh, and they have been really incredible during the pandemic here with the way that they have stepped up and provided a lot of information at a very reasonable cost. And I, I found over the years that um, uh, people that are engaged with ARN tend to to really be on top of things. Mm-hmm. So please consider supporting ARN in your organization. And at the very least, you, you need to be a member in order to get a discount price on the, uh, uh, the ARN standards books. So, And I know you want to talk about some recent experiences you've had in surveys. Yeah. So so now instead of talking about our clients, I actually mm-hmm. did a survey recently. And, you know, and the survey went very well overall, but there were a couple of things I, we always try to get some lessons out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the organization will do very well in the survey. But one thing I noted is that this was an older facility. Uh, they've been around some, for some 25, maybe even 30 years uh, and they were definitely overconfident for the survey. They hadn't yeah. bothered to read the uh, accreditation manual. They yeah. didn't even have a copy of the newest accreditation manual. And I know you said that's so important because it doesn't matter how many times you've had a survey. It's not up to the surveyor to point every single thing right. out. You know, you hope that they see every, or maybe you don't, but <laughs> everybody might notice something different. So you need to know that you're doing everything right. you can to meet those standards so that no matter who comes in looking... You know they're You're not going to find too many issues. Yeah, I, I was I was disappointed in that, and a point that I made during the the um, the survey too is that even I have to read. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know keep on top of these things, but even I have to read the accreditation manual, uh, perhaps more so than than uh, you and the other you know staff members because yeah. uh, you know I don't always get into the weeds like you have to do uh, in order to prepare the policies, write the policies, and 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 uh, work on the minutes there. But I I just uh, please. Please, please read that accreditation manual, assign, give homework assignment to your staff so that they can, you know, stay on top of the different provisions in there and, and recognize that, uh, you know, changes occur. It's not, uh, it's not a stagnant industry. 
So, and then the the last thing that I ran into during the survey was some issues with regard, regard to the governing body minutes. And the, the the administrator was really trying to summarize the minutes, trying to make them more succinct and use less words. But uh-huh. in doing so, she left a lot out. And um, so she, she basically said in the minutes here, you know, reviewed the Quality Improvement Committee meeting. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. So there were no, there was no board action. And in this particular organization, uh, they don't have a medical executive committee. So the Quality Improvement Committee was the one that reviewed the credentials of the providers. Mm-hmm. So the minutes actually didn't specifically state that the uh, the providers had been approved, and mm-hmm. certainly didn't state uh, the time frame for that approval. Mm-hmm. And also, there were some actions in the Quality Improvement Committee uh, for policy changes as a result of activities going on there, which were not approved by the governing body either. Mm-hmm. So it is very, very important. And you know, everybody knows how passionate I am about governing body activities and and uh, and properly documenting the minutes. Please be very careful about that. Uh, and I, I, I know some organizations actually have uh, like administrative assistants write, writing the governing body minutes. Please don't do that. Uh, governing body is such an important part of your organization that the person writing it probably should be the administrator or Mm -hmm. like an executive director or the nurse Mm -hmm. manager if that's the highest level person because only they truly understand all the things that are necessary in order to properly document the regulatory compliance in that organization. Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's uh, take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk about a number of issues uh, in our interview with Christina Norman related to operational efficiency during this new world that we live in. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS 
infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. I think it's fair to say that many of the things that's happened in the last year during the pandemic and as we're heading out of it, I'm hoping we're heading out of it, mm-hmm. are likely to be in place for a long time. Uh, for example, I don't think we're going to be allowing coworkers to come to work if they're sick anymore, right? Yeah. I think if we finally... Uh, lesson learned. <laughs> yeah, lesson learned, right. And uh, I'm hoping, though, this is not necessarily true uh, from my experience here, that people will be getting the flu vaccine. And, you know, we know how, and we've talked about this for our last two years here on the podcast, the importance of making sure that your staff, you know, gets that flu vaccine. So I'm hoping that uh, people will recognize moving forward the importance of doing this and, and staying home if they're sick. And the other thing that I've been talking about lately is the importance of uh, or realizing how important our maintenance, supply clerks, and other clerks in our organization who often earn the least amount uh, of money in our organizations and how important they are to our operations. Uh, and we've been talking about this, the credentialing coordinators. Uh-huh. I've seen a lot of credentialing coordinators yes. leaving. And, uh, and heavens, we we know now, you know, Yeah, what you're a, in a very a bad loss. spot if you don't have somebody that knows how to do that. Yeah. So we've been thinking quite a bit on the podcast here about, uh, you know, some of the other lessons that we've learned uh-huh. and and uh, what is, what's the difference between, um, you know, a high-performing ambulatory surgery center and one that's maybe not performing mm-hmm. up to up to the level that we would expect them to be. Yeah, and part of it is is just maintaining um, good communication with your staff and your patients, just keeping your staff happy, I think, with, with that constant communication, reinforcement, being available when they have issues, because the ones that do the best are, are places that have staff that has been there a long time. They know right. what they're doing when you're constantly retraining people. You know, if people leave because they're not happy, they're not getting what yeah. they need from the job, then you're, you're just, you're always fighting a losing battle. Well, and we're also seeing complaints. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're monitoring some of, there's a trend right now for people to complain to OSHA, mm-hmm. to the state, uh, to the accrediting organization if they don't feel yeah. safe in their own organization. And that can be headed off by, you know, making sure there's good communication, good educational mm-hmm. programs available, you know, obviously having PPE, but also explaining you know, if you're if you're not using N95s, explaining why you're not because maybe mm-hmm. there's other, you know, things in place yeah. to assure that the patients are safe. Um, so, uh, you know, to that end, we had an opportunity to talk to our dear friend, Christina Norman. Christina is a, a nurse administrator for uh, an ambulatory surgery center in Chictawaga, New York. And in uh, a recent Ask a uh, article in in the ASC Focus magazine, she talked about the, the title of which was "Protect Operational Efficiency in the New Normal." Uh, and Sue, you and I had an opportunity to interview her last week, and mm-hmm. I thought it would be good to kind of include that interview here and uh, and talk a little bit about, well, talk a lot about um, about some of the lessons that she learned. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we talk about the issue of uh, coronavirus fatigue or pandemic mm-hmm. fatigue, whatever you want to call it. So let's listen to the interview. So this is John Gailey here. I'm with Christina Norman, a, a dear friend of ours from uh, from many years. Christina is one of the clients of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and uh, we ju- actually, Christina, we just went through a great survey with you and uh, Triple H C, didn't we? Yes, we did. 
So I thought that uh, we would uh, bring you on. You ha- you were um, interviewed for ASC Focus uh, by Rob Curse a while ago, and the title of that interview or that article was Protect Operational Efficiency in the New Normal. And while the, the focus of the article wasn't co- solely on COVID-19, it definitely had a bit of a focus on on uh, the challenges of uh, remaining efficient in, in the new world. So I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast here uh, to speak a, a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the content of that and just some other observations. That uh, article, was that in September? I want to say it was in August. It might have been August. So, so a lot has happened since then, of course. Uh, anyway, yeah, I guess we, we should, right? <laughs> and we should point out that Christina comes from a surgery center in uh, Buffalo, New York, which is the western portion of New York. So, Christina, as part of the interview, you talked about the patient experience and how you know everyone in the surgery center you know plays a very vital role as, as part of the the patient experience. So, let's kick this off just by talking about the importance of the patient experience and how operationally you can um uh, you know make that patient experience much better uh through improving the uh the operational efficiency. Sure. So, you know, it starts right at the time of booking the patient. You know, it starts with the the scheduling aspect of the patient. You know, we have a system set into, into play where, where the patient receives a text message prior to coming to the surgery center as to what their copay will be. Um, it gives them the option to pay their copay ahead of time before they even come to the facility to alleviate that stressor of day of, you know, you know, worrying about bringing your credit card, your checkbook. That's not really at the top of your priority list when you come in for surgery. Um, but unfortunately, it's a necessary evil. Payment is payment. Um, and then it translates to, you know, the booking of the case, talking to the scheduling team, talking to the pre-admission nurses, making sure that the patient has gone for, you know, all of their necessary preoperative clearances, blood work. And this is where an EMR system really comes into play and why now more than ever is really important to have that put into effect. You know, I can't imagine doing what we do today being on paper and not in an EMR system. It makes right. everybody see real time what's happening with the patient, you know, at the time of booking, if they mission interview um, and things like that. So you brought up a, a topic, which is kind of interesting, use of text uh, messaging. Actually, within our company, we've started to realize that uh, email is uh, no longer the efficient mechanism that it used to be for communicating with uh, That's true. literally anybody. Um, and uh, I was just uh, attending a conference or listening to a conference where they were talking about that very subject, about how important it is to start transitioning to a more direct or uh, interactive mode, which uh, they perceived was um, uh, was texting. So talk a little bit about about how effective that communication has been within your organization. Sure. So we use a system that's called AMCHI charts. Right now, we have plans to go to surgical, the SIS complete um, after the first of the year. It just makes for a well-rounded patient experience, you know, all the way around, you know, from, like I said, from the time of booking to the time of discharge, it makes the physician see live time what is happening at the surgery center, which has never happened before. They usually have had to be on site to see, you know, if patients are on time, if they're delayed, even documentation after the, the patient has been seen, you know, physicians can do that prior to arriving at the surgery center after they've already left the property. And, you know, there's there's alerts that you can put into the system at the time of booking or at the time of pre-admission that the pre-op nurse can see it in real time. Yeah. Um, So that, you know, it avoids the delay of the patient, you know, having to leave the patient, go find who talked to the patient originally. You can see it all in live time, you know, and that's priceless. Time, you know, time is priceless. And it's also um, feeds well into the new world where we're trying to to minimize direct contact or uh, uh, extra uh, movement within the center, too. 
Correct. So COVID-19 has been a bit of a challenge. You and I have spoken quite a bit, and you've uh, been very active uh, in our various conferences and, and uh, listening to the podcast over the, the last year. Tell us how your life has changed under COVID-19 and the type of challenges. I, I wish you could see this. We're, we're, of course, doing this in Zoom, and she's like shaking her head <laughs> as we're talking about this. Um, uh, but for our listeners, <laughs> talk a little bit about, you know, what the challenge has been. And, and Christina, you are a, uh, a nurse administrator, basically, in this center. So you have the responsibilities both yeah. for administration as well as nursing. So talk a little bit about how your life has changed under COVID and, and how that relates to the uh, operational efficiency. Yeah, it's changed everything. It's changed how you check the patient in. It's changed, you know, how surgeons schedule cases. It's changed even how the patient is discharged from the facility. You know, um, when COVID first hit, you know, we had to alter what we what we did pretty much everything. You know, you had to reconfigure surgeon blocks. You had to, you know, put a short case and then a long case and then a short case and then a long case. And, you know, in order to provide that social distancing, social distancing is a huge problem in what we do because, you know, nine times out of 10, our surgery centers are on the smaller side. Right. We don't have the luxury of giant waiting rooms that the hospital has. So we've had to alter that, you know, in regards to the check-in process of our patient, we set up a tent in our back parking lot to have somewhat of a mobile check-in to avoid the waiting in the waiting room. I mean, you know, pre-COVID on a busy Tuesday, you would have about 95 cases in a day. Um, That's, that's can't happen now, but I mean, even 66 cases in a day um, is what we had yesterday. And, you know, to be able to move all of those patients and responsible parties in and out in a safe manner, you got to be able to think outside the box a little bit. You know, we, we instituted a tent in our back parking lot to check the patient in. Um, after check-in, they're given a pager similar to what you would receive in a restaurant. The pager goes off. It tells the patient to come inside and await further instruction. They either go upstairs or downstairs. And your, your family members actually never come into the center, Correct. Correct. So the all only, of that is done uh, outside, including the discharge instructions. Correct. Uh, so, family. you know, the only, the only instances where we would allow somebody to stay in our waiting room is if the patient was a minor, they were in need of a translator, um, or the patient was coming from some type of long-term care, assisted living that had an aid with them. Right. Yeah. So what are you going to do? So you're in Western New York. Uh, those of you that don't know where Western New York is, it's it's cold uh, during the mm-hmm. winter time. We have snow. We probably have snow on the ground like we do up here yeah. uh, right now. Yeah. So what are you going to do? How how are things going to be different uh, with that outside tent in the winter? So that's funny you just brought that up because we were just talking about this last week because, as you said, the weather is changing. You can't expect people to wait out in their cars for one to two hours yeah. waiting for their loved one to you know have their surgery completed. It's unrealistic. Right. So um, we've actually looked into um, renting a a vacant building that is literally right down the street from our surgery center. It's kind of a staging area for the responsible parties for the patient so that they're not too far away, but they're far enough away that we could, you know, still reach out to them if needed. Yeah. Then it's a, it's a, it's a warm place for them to stay that they don't have to remain in their car. That's a great idea. That's a great, and I got to say, I, I was there when uh, the tent was being. Well, I'm sure the tent's still being used, but uh, when I yeah. when you first put it up there, it was a wonderful system. But of course, you had a couple luxuries that not all the centers have. You have a large parking lot. Um, yes. You know, an excellent flow. You know, where people could drive through and then park in the back and be away from everybody else. It, it really, you had the ideal setup, but that's not going to be the case in all situations. But it does seem to me like that idea of uh, a wide open space might be uh, 
it might be able to be translated in some centers, certainly not our urban centers, but that's a great idea. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, you know, snow throws a wrench into things and <laughs> you got to be able to think outside the box. But so let's talk about the, the challenge to your staffing with this. Now, I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the podcast, but as a surveyor, one of the first questions I ask when I go into a survey, well, it's two questions. First of all, where are you volume wise as compared to where you were before COVID? And where are you with regard to staffing and the amount of hours? And my my purpose in doing that is I do not want to hear somebody saying, oh, yeah, we're back up to full volume and our staffing's the same and, and we work the same number of hours because that's an indication that you're not adapting to it. So so with that being said, because I know your answer already, uh, but with that being said, tell us a little bit about, the, about where you are volume-wise and uh, a little bit about your staffing situation and how long your days are now. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, you know, on, on a Tuesday, we could easily do about 90 to 95 cases in totality in our, in our two floor building. Um, but for instance, yesterday we, we were about at 60 cases, which is, you know, quite a lot, but nowhere near what we were able to do. Um, you know, we have seven operating rooms and we're down to five because they have to maintain that social distancing of our patients. If I put all seven ORs back into play, you could, you might as well just kiss that social distancing goodbye. So your um, staffing is back to where it was before, but your volume is down. Yeah. Yeah. As staffing wise, you know, the majority of our staff are on eight or 10 hour shifts and we have, you know, people that start at six o'clock, seven o'clock and eight o'clock. Um, you know, it all depends on the shift that they're assigned, but you have to stagger that because you have to allot social distancing in your changing rooms yeah. and in your, by the time clock. Um, and we've had to create even bigger spaces for our staff to change and to eat in because of social distancing. Let's talk about that for a second, because that has been uh, an issue that's been brought up is how do we, um, how, how does everyone deal with uh, lunch breaks, you know, breaks in general, especially lunch where, you know, people have to, I don't know anybody yet that actually can eat through a mask. So uh, <laughs> uh, that presents your, 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 with a unique challenge. So how are you handling lunches? Yeah, you know, you just have to stagger it. You know, we have some that go from 11 to 11.30, 11.30 to 12 o'clock, 12 to 12.30, and everybody is just kind of under the assumption that that's our new norm. You know, it used to be everybody everybody go to lunch at 11 o'clock or everybody go at 11.30, and that, that can't be a thing anymore. You almost have to set limits, and I've had to take chairs away from the lunchroom because they've still tried yeah. to eat all together. <laughs> And I understand you, and you know, I understand the concept of, you know, we work together every day. It's totally fine. You know, we're safe. We see each other every day, but you know what? I don't know what everybody does when they leave us and when they come back the next day and who you're exposed to. So, you know, in order to maintain the safety of everybody involved, you know, you have to put those guidelines into play, even to go as far as putting a sign on your lunchroom door saying no more than 10 people in at a time, depending on the capacity or the size of your break room. Right. So how are you dealing with the challenges of staff that um, are challenged at home? You know, we, we know that uh, mothers of uh, mothers and fathers of uh, children that uh, are, are home now instead of at school uh, present a unique challenge. How, are, are you doing anything different to accommodate those? Yeah, you know, I have a couple of staff members, I mean, myself included, I have a six-year-old who's in first grade. And unfortunately, as of Monday, she goes completely virtual because of of the uptick in COVID. So that's going to, that's going to be a hardship for myself. Yeah. Um, but I have had other nurses that have even back in September when school was just about to start, you know, the majority of them, their kids were only in two days a week. Um, so unfortunately I've had to supplement, 
by bringing on new staff members to supplement in the time that my current staff members had to remain home and be with their children to be their teacher. You know, it's unfortunately it's the new norm and, you know, by law you have to be able to provide that to your staff. Right. Uh, Going back to uh, reconfiguring the surgeon blocks. uh, So let's talk about a couple things there. First of all, what are you finding without putting yourself on the spot with your surgeons, but what are you finding with regard to, uh, surgeons' um, feelings about the reconfiguring of the blocks and, and compliance and just, you know, how uh, open to uh, changes they have been? You know, it's been hard because trying to, you know, help the, the surgeon see the full picture is really the big issue. You know, unfortunately, and to no fault of their own, you know, they see itself that the patient is scheduled for, you know, say it's a, a cataract that takes five minutes. Okay, well, that's well and great. I'm so glad that you can do a cataract in five minutes, but it also takes, you have to take into effect the preoperative process of the patient, how long they're going to stay in a preoperative holding area. Okay, well, how many patients can I keep in there at a time? And then, you know, the five minute OR process and then the recovery room. Okay, the patient's going to stay in the recovery room for 20 minutes. Um, So that all has to come into play. How long it takes to put to, to put the patient asleep and wake them up, yeah. you know, all has to get factored into how long that procedure actually takes for that patient. And it, that's where, you know, communication came into play with talking with the scheduling teams for all the specialties that we do here, urology, ophthalmology, you know, everybody had to be on the same page that, you know, for a long time, you know, you would play the paper game. You would say that a cystoscopy takes five minutes. So a half hour block is totally fine. Well, that's not the case anymore because we still have to maintain that social distancing in our recovery room. So if I keep doing these five-minute cystoscopies and I keep putting these patients in recovery room, somewhere along the lines, you're going to get so clogged up that I'm going to have to hold patients in the operating room. And that's not ideal for anybody. Right. So, Christina, this is getting tiring, isn't it? You know, we've been doing this (laughs) since uh, March. Uh, We're recording this in November. And we are hearing the term COVID burnout now. And I know you have some thoughts about that, too. So tell us how how you're combating that and uh, if you have any ideas for our audience as to how we can, uh, can avoid it. Yeah, you know, it's a real thing. Unfortunately, like you just said, we've been dealing with this for quite some time. Um, and I think the staff is is getting burned out. And I think that's a great way to say it, you know, but I think now is the best time more than ever to really um, put your staff first. And of course, we want to be there for our patients and our surgeons. But, you know, if, if we don't have the staff to be there for our patients, um, we're not going to be able to do the, the cases that we do. Yeah. You know, so I think it's really important to really keep on top of how you schedule cases, how many cases you put on, make sure that it's safely done in a safe manner. People are getting to a point where mask wearing is becoming a thing now where I have to remind people to keep their masks up because people are just getting burnt out and yeah. they're so used to being around each other all day, every day. Um, but just the general reminders here and there that this is still a serious pandemic. We all have to be here for each other and our patients. And it's just the general reminders and in-services that you can do here and there. And even even providing them an outlet if they need it. Yeah. You know, sometimes they just need a quiet space to just be by themselves and have their masks down and give themselves a mask break. And consult rooms are great for that. I, I'll give up my office from time to time when I see somebody kind of getting to that point. Yeah. And just at the end of the day, just being there for your staff and treating them as a person and not necessarily as a nurse, a tech, a scrub. It's tiring. You bring up a good point because I, not being a clinician, uh, wearing masks, you know, for a full day is, is very difficult for me. I have, I have asthma too. Um, and mm-hmm. I wear a KN95 just to be a little bit more protective. Uh, but it, it, it is fatiguing. And I, I agree with you, especially for people that may, might not, 
you know, operating room nurses are used to it, but not everybody in your organization is going to be used to wearing it all day long. And I think your your idea about uh, giving them an opportunity to, which of course is time, you know, to to go away, almost like a the old smoking break. <laughs> Instead of a smoking break, yeah, you're right. you're getting a mask, uh, a, no a mask, mask break. break. <laughs> I think that's yeah. a good idea. Uh, what and I another thing you mentioned there is just giving people a voice. Uh, I think that's important too. Just listening. Uh, one of the skills that leaders, nursing leader, all leaders have uh, is is learning that they don't have to solve all the problems. Sometimes they just have to listen uh, to their staff. So what are your thoughts about that? I know you do a great job with your staff, but uh, you're just, just some thoughts about uh, about listening. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny because I just, I just got done with doing all of my staff evaluations. And I think that's really important. I think that is a great opportunity that we don't necessarily have during, you know, throughout our, our hectic days that we have now to have that one-on-one conversation with each and every one of your staff members. I'll always walk around and I'll say good morning to every department in my facility and everybody that I see, but you know, I don't get that one-on-one interaction where they can really sit down and and vent how they're feeling and their frustrations and what I can do to help them and vice versa, what they can do to help me. Um, That's why, you know, staff evaluations or, you know, 15 minute little conversations that you can have here and there is really key. Agreed. And do you do huddles in the morning? Yeah, you know, we try. It's hard because we have like the staggered staff scheduling. And huddling so is not, our, not great for uh, social distancing either. Yeah. I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah, you know, we we used to, um, before COVID, um, huddling was a great way to get everybody on the same page, talk about what the day was going to entail. And because of staggered staffing, that does become tricky. Um, but what I instituted is I instituted a, you know, a, an administrator email um, that I'll send out to everybody to keep everybody on the same page as to the happenings of the center um, weekly basis, kind of keep everybody in the loop, what's happening, what's happening with patients, what kind of new things are going to see in the center and things like that. That's a great takeaway. And with that, I guess we're kind of out of time. Uh, Christina, <laughs> as always, this has been great. Before we uh, we leave, though, you were you and I were talking before we actually started the recording here about uh, how you got to where you are and what you wish you would have had an opportunity to do if you were to do it over again. So uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your experiences in becoming an administrator. So um, January 2019 was my first uh, day as official administrator of the surgery center that I currently work at. Before that, I was the ophthalmology nurse manager. So this was a huge learning curve for myself. You know, uh, thank God for uh, something like John's company, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. I don't really know where I would have been if I didn't have somebody like that as a resource. Um, so I think that this conference is a great idea. I wish that something like this would have been around for me when I first started, because unfortunately, it was unfortunately, unfortunately, that it was all trial by fire. It was all lifetime learning. You know, I learned by doing it. Yeah. For lack of better terms, you know. And what what Christina is referring to is that uh, we're talking about the ASC Administrators Bootcamp, which is uh, going to be in December. And information about it is available at nascpodcast.com. Uh, but uh, as you were saying, that the, the the whole purpose of this bootcamp is just to be able to provide new administrators or what we're finding is even somewhat experienced administrators who just want a little bit more you know, practical knowledge or signing up for it also. So, uh, you think that, that this would have been very helpful for you uh, uh, two oh, years ago when you were getting into it. Yes. 
Yeah, it was a lot to learn right off the bat. And I mean, it's not just because I'm a clinical person, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm a registered nurse, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a financial person. So learning all of that aspect of this position was a huge learning curve for myself. (laughs) What do you think, uh, you know, being a clinician, what do you think was the most difficult thing to learn uh, going into administration or or going into as an administrator? You know, one of the biggest struggles that I still deal with um, now is, you know, not being not being the person in the OR, mm-hmm. not being the person that the doctor comes to right off the bat, not being the circulator. And it's hard removing yourself from that position and kind of stepping back and taking more of an administrative role. That's still something that I struggle with and not trying to wear 50, as of course, as administrator, you wear 50 million different hats, but, you know, removing myself from the clinical aspect of it has been really hard. Yeah. And and the challenge I know that you've had, too, is with uh, 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 learning the regulatory environment, learning the accreditation requirement, too, is, is taking quite a bit of your time. Yeah. I mean, literally sitting down with our policy and procedure manual, which is 5,000 pages long. Um, I, I do need to point out, you have the record. Your organization has the record for the biggest policy manual we've ever encountered. I think when I first inherited it, it was over 1,300, almost 1,400 pages, so. And I believe it, and, you know, I didn't fully appreciate it entirely until I just went through our triple HC accreditation back in August. But I mean, it's so important. You have to know that back, you know, frontwards and backwards, because they will ask you from A to Z, how you do what you do and how you do it. Yeah. And you got to find that policy very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. And if I have one recommendation is to create a little library for yourself and on a cart and have everything right there, ready to go. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you. And uh, anybody that's interested in the ASC Administrators Bootcamp coming up in uh, January, definitely visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Christina's going to be joining us there. Uh, the way this uh, boot camp is going to be is uh, we're not going to use the webinar software. We're going to use uh, Zoom. So uh, we're going to limit the number of participants, and you're going to be able to all kind of uh, uh, participate at the same time. So that way it's a little bit more collegial. So I'm very I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to having you uh, involved in it also, Christina. I think you're going to be I'm excited. I can't wait. That's great. So you take uh, take it easy, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you. We'll bring you on again in a couple months just to kind of see how things are going. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Sure. So, Sue, traditionally in our, our third part of our uh, podcast, we spend some time talking about upcoming events. We just don't get them anymore, uh, and I don't even know what else to say there other than if you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. Hopefully, pretty soon we're going to be able to start uh, meeting in person and be able to have events to talk about. But I thought what we would talk about is some upcoming um, seminars that we have uh, that we're sponsoring here at the uh, the podcast. Our first one is the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement fall seminar. It's a follow-up to our spring seminar, which was a huge success. And by the way, a recording of the seminar is available at ASCPodcast.com website. So save the date. It's December 3rd and 4th. It's a joint production of ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Christina Benton of uh, Coding Compliance Management. Uh, The fall conference will include information on the final 2020 HOPD ASC CMS regulatory updates, as we talked about in the first segment. 
and more finance and accounting and reimbursement topics to extend our discussion from the spring conference, including more advanced uh, accounting topics, discussion of revenue cycle and reimbursement, advanced financial management, advanced budgeting and financial projections, strategic planning in the ASC setting. So for more information, sign up at ASCpodcast.com. The ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now a virtual conference. January 11th, 19th, and 25th, this popular seminar provides essential training for ASC builders and coders. During three afternoons in January, you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements. And probably the most exciting thing that we have done in the last year is the Administrators Boot Camp. So I have been working for, I'd say, 10 years to do this. I had hoped to uh, to have uh, have it in some nice place. Actually, I was thinking of doing it on a, on a cruise ship, Sue. That, that would have been nice. That would have been nice to take all of our, our new administrators out to a, a nice little cruise ship, but that didn't happen. But uh, the virtual world has provided an opportunity to do this in a very cost-effective way. So, uh, the, uh, so prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Bootcamp. It's a comprehensive program to prepare ASC administrators for the challenges of leading and managing an ambulatory surgery center. Uh, the bootcamp includes reading materials, virtual private consultations, and an intensive four-day virtual conference, which is going to be presented in January 2021 from the 26th through the 29th. Uh, the program is designed for new administrators, administrators that wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. This is going to be a highly interactive program, and it's going to be presented to a very limited cohort of students and will be done through virtual private meetings and, of course, as I mentioned, the four-day interactive uh, video conference, allowing you to see the speakers and other attendees if they wish and to interact as much as you would during a live conference. Uh, so for more information and to uh, sign up for the um, ASC Administrators Bootcamp, go to ASCpodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron, as we said, by going to our website. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode, as it is for all of our episodes, is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Lori Rodericks, and Denise Van Buren. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. 